Today, we are talking to David Huell, a renowned futurist and speaker. We discuss machine learning, the future of programming, and the integration of technology with humanity. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. I was really pumped to get to listen to you speak. Uh-huh. I was obviously glad to have you in the room. <laughs> that was an interesting crowd. Well, it's a typical crowd in Sarasota that's old enough to have entrenched beliefs that they use mainstream media to support, you know, and that's the problem. Well, you handled it super well, and it was a very interesting talk on the future. Did you catch the uh, space shuttle launch, Elon Musk launch the other day? I didn't see it. I mean, I've seen it subsequently. I mean, I just, I mean, you know, the guy's just, the guy just operates at a different level than, I mean, he's in Technicolor and everyone else was in black and white, you know? Oh, I fully agree with that. So you, you didn't set out time to sit down and watch launch. You're like, I'm going to watch it on my time. Yeah, exactly. I didn't. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm obviously a lot older than you, and I've seen, you know, 20 rocket launches. I mean, a rocket launch is a rocket launch, right? And, you know, they look the same. This was a bigger one, I understand. But um, no, I'm just, I've been slammed work-wise is the problem. So what can I say? Are you giving lots of talks? Yes. Um, and... Uh, I'm also, uh, I found out about three weeks ago that something I'm involved with is doing an ICO. So I'm on a vertical learning curve of cryptocurrencies as well. You know, so that in addition to landing some really big, significant speaking gigs and looking for funding for this Spaceship Earth, my nonprofit, you know, so it's like, okay, (laughs) how can I figure out to be totally rested and not sleep, right? You know, that's the situation. I'm on a similar path. I I just am constantly moving all day, like the Energizer Bunny, trying to catch sleep when I can. Well, I'm I'm really impressed. You know, either either you're accomplished beyond your years, or you have shaped a brand of yourself that does that. You know, so congratulations on you for you live in Sarasota, right? Oh, I'm a native. Yes, right. I do. So I, you know. Um, People at your age who get what you get are far and few between in this part of the world, right? Yeah, I don't know many people that are my age that act like me, correct? (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) You know, I mean, I I, I know people your age who act like you elsewhere, but they're in Silicon Valley or, you know, they're in some startup in Chicago or something, right? You know, that, that's why it was so nice to have you there because it's like, see, see, you know, the analogy I use is that is when something happens that people think won't happen, it changes consciousness, you know. So people uh, for 30 years believed that man, a man could never run a four minute mile. And when Roger, Roger Bannister ran it, I think in 1953, 359.59, he broke that. And within Six months, five other people had done it because the perception was, oh, it's doable, right? Yeah. And and so that's what kind of you were to the for me in that room. You don't think I'm right? Uh-huh. Somebody who goes, oh, yeah, he's totally right. <laughs> you know. So 
I appreciate that. If if I could go back and give myself advice, it would essentially be this podcast, <laughs> right? Like here's the mistakes to avoid and here's what to look for. And so what I realized is that technology isn't slowing down, it's speeding up. So while there was maybe one in a thousand or one in 10,000 of, of me then, tw- you know, 20 years ago, there is probably a hundred and a thousand or 200 and a thousand now. So there's a lot more of, of those individuals right. looking to, to get into technology and do business and stuff like that at a younger age. So, so, so okay, so I have a question for you, if I could just ask yeah. it before I forget. So as a futurist, you know, I've been doing a deep dive the last few years into what is currently called artificial intelligence. And I certainly want to talk mm-hmm. about that. But, but um, you know, the developing view is that machines will self-code within 10 years. More or less. I am getting asked the question, you know, in fact, I, I just did a long interview yesterday with a media outlet in Canada. And the question was, you know, the Canadian government's going to invest $50 million to teach young people how to code. And what do I think of that? My comment was, they're not preparing. By the time these kids get out of high school or college, coding will not be a profession that they can make money Rather, it will be a skill they can use on their own for their own websites, similar to in the 50s and 60s. If you, if you were a woman then and you learned how to type, you could make a living typing. But, um, you know, now it's a skill. Do you, so am I correct in that, that increasingly machine learning will self-code itself so that, so that the number of coders will go down relative to uh, a professional job? So... I I had Peter Cooper on yesterday and he's uh, Peter Cooper of Cooper Press. So they they have the largest like publication of developers and it's like developers read their newsletters, their email newsletters. And so he's he's really bright. And we had this conversation um, that it's going to be like that. Programming is going to be a skill like in your tool belt of a thing you can do built around something else larger. To answer your first question about the um, machine learning or the artificial intelligence, we are every single day we take one step closer towards the machines writing their own code autonomously. So, so for example, if uh, uh, if you were at the age now that you were then when you started coding, you would be learning to code not so much as you said to make money, but to learn a skill that is a movable face that you can take with you wherever you go to do what you want, if not necessarily be well paid to do it, right? Correct. It'll be it'll be like commoditized and more like a construction worker, where as you know, it's the person laying the blocks. Yeah, we have machines building buildings now, and we also have people still building buildings. And I think code will look a lot like that too. You'll have code writing code and you'll have people writing code, but it won't be the same glamorous thing it was the past 20 years. Right. Okay, good. So I've been right. In other words, it's just kind of like politicians talking about STEM education and we don't need STEM anymore. We need education to teach young people to think creatively and in a design manner. You know, graduates today are told, uh, you know, college graduates in your lifetime, you're going to have three to five careers, two or three of which have yet to be invented. So how can you possibly teach somebody a career any longer, right? 
Well, that's actually on my notes here. One of the things that stuck with me the most about listening to your talk, it's so backwards that we say we're going to go through K through 12 and we have the information that you're going to need for the rest of your life mapped out in these 12 years. When we turn around and, and our our analysts, our best technology people in the world can can not even accurately predict out five to eight years. You can do the macro, right? You can do macro predictions, but you can't predict like super micro things. Yeah, no, the smaller you get, the higher the variable for the outcome, right? So right. I don't know, if, did you ever read the Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Asimov? No, I haven't. You should. It's the foundation of modern science fiction, really. And the whole concept was psychohistory, that this mathematician using masses, you know, at the time, billions of people as an aggregate, he could mathematically predict what would happen, but take it down to an individual, and he couldn't, right? So, for example, I um, uh, I am very proud, and I stand on this statement that my job is to be extremely accurate up to five years out and directionally fairly accurate 10 to 15 years out. So that's what I do, and all my forecasts are on my website. I'm one of the only futurists I know that has put up what I forecast and when I did it. And then I'm writing a column that I posted this week about 2018, and I had to say, you know, what I just said to you, and that, but when you come closer in, um, there's more variability. You know, Donald Trump could do one thing, or somebody could do one thing that would change an equation, but over 10 years, 10 million people, I'll be accurate. So you're exactly right. And isn't that how data works, period? Yes. And that's the other thing. I, I, I don't know who's interviewing who here. I, do you want me to set up and start over? Or what do you want to do? No, just keep going. Okay. So I, I want to get into the conversation of artificial intelligence in a big way. But the transition to that, um, uh, I, I say that in the future, from this point on, data will rule because data is available in, way, in the magnitude that has never been before, so that what humans are, you know, when, when somebody says, when a CEO says to the, a VP of a company, just give me the facts, that would be a human with all their subjectivity, with points of view, providing what they think are the facts. If the machine learning is, is initially programmed correctly, it will just give you the data you know, which is fu the fundamental underpinnings of what is perceived as facts. So we've taken away a layer of interpretation just by moving to, to uh, machine intelligence. Yeah, I loved your graph about the data explosion. Oh, yeah, right. It, it's so insane. Just to say it, in 2010, humanity created 1.8 zettabytes of data, a zettabyte being a billion terabytes, and in 23rd, in 2040, it will be 12,000. So we're moving from 1.8 to 12,000 in in um, 30 years. Wow. It was interesting when you were talking about the the um, the data and how the book, the Asimov book, about how you could predict things with large sets of data. What ran through my mind was this is I was blown away when I found this out. I have a friend who is a fire chief locally, right? And he was talking to me. We were, he was showing me his, their systems that the emergency services use is really, really cool. Like their custom systems they built. Mm -hmm. And we were talking, it's very predictable to emergency services, whether it's police and crime or fires and firefighters or accidents and ambulances. 
on a scale of a city of when there's going to be, when these things are going to happen. Like this is something that, that's been around for them for a long time. They've always been able to predict and staff based on the time of year and days and everything about how many incidents occur. Exactly. I mean, as a futurist and as a CTO, you and I tend to use movies, for example. So what you just said is what is the current reality to what Minority Report was all about. Right. You know? We're moving towards that every day. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, so um, can I go off on a, on a, on a big thought? Yes. That? Okay. So, you know, so it's, here we are in February 2018. Just about two years ago, I really got frustrated by the stupidity and the over-simple dual conversation about artificial intelligence. Oh, robotic overlords or not, it's good or it's bad. And it just, it was such a, for something that's so transformative to me, it was the ultimately stupid conversation. So here's what I did, and I do this in every presentation, and I think I probably did it in the one that you saw. I went to five dictionaries and I looked up the definition of the word intelligence. And in none of the dictionaries was the word human part of the definition, which means that intelligence is intelligence. Dolphins are intelligence. Whales are intelligence. People always tell me how intelligent their pets are. So, so I've said that the next 20 years is the age of intelligence. So the reason I think, and I'm using the word AI, I use, use the word AI because it, it, it has become the name of this loose thing. But I believe that the reason we, humanity, has started using the word art, phrase artificial intelligence is that artificial diminishes the intelligence. Like it's not human, it's artificial as compared to us. And yet intelligence is never defined as being of humanness. Therefore, the reason we use artificial intelligence is that we humanity, and you being younger and much more adaptive, you know, have to look to the people who are in that room, right? That, that humanity, for our, we are the first iteration of humanity to have to psychologically adapt to an equal or superior intelligence cohabiting the planet with us. And because that is so psychologically disturbing, because it's never happened in history, we have to diminish it by calling it artificial. So what I say is that within a few years, the word artificial is going to drop away. I'm going to try to lead that. It is machine learning. It is deep learning. It is, doesn't have anything to do with artificial because this intelligence, Lex's intelligence is not artificial. It's intelligence. It may be at a low level, but it's nevertheless intelligence. It's not artificial. So the whole phrase artificial intelligence to me represents the deep, deep psychological disturbance in many people that there will be an intelligence smarter than them that is not of a carbon life form. Well, that, that's really important because so we're, you know, anthropomorphic by nature. So we're imagining that these aliens would be these other breathing uh, carbon life forms that are strutting around and, and, in humanoid figures, right? Yeah. Yeah, in humanoid figures, right? Similar to us, right? Because that's how that's what that means. Right. So, the, the act of of shifting it actually, I, I just did it in my head, and it made me feel a little uncomfortable. 
because it's like if you shift that same thought to like just replace those aliens with the technology mm-hmm. and just imagine that the silicon like the 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 computer systems like the electronics are the invasion mm-hmm. then it's like really kind of creepy because you just feel almost a little gross because like you're like you look around your room and you're like ooh, you look at how you spend your time i always like to think of an alien species like that was carbon that like came and was hovering over earth right over earth watching us they would think that these screens are our gods because we look like we worship them 24 hours a day well okay so so one thing about that ever since i was a teenager um i have said this and i still say it and it's like i'm surprised that people have never heard this before right i you know i said the other night at a at a, at a lecture i was giving i said if an alien form uh, flew across the united states at ten thousand feet and they didn't know anything about earth they would assume that the car is the dominant life form because the whole landscape was created around the car right, right. you know so here are th- so People say to me as a futurist, uh, Joel, that, that I connect the dots that other people can't see. So let me connect three dots for you to come up with a punchline. Dot number one is um, the book Origin, which is Dan Brown's latest book. You probably haven't read it. Uh, have you read any of Dan Brown's works? No. Okay. So the reason I had to read it, the protagonist is a futurist, and one of the main characters is an artificial intelligence and the end of that book basically shows that um that uh, entropy is the law of the universe so so humanity is going to give over to technology which is an ascendancy so i'm reading that book then i'm going i'm a huge um uh i just blanked on the name uh a blade runner fan and and Blade Runner 49, I saw around the same time I was reading the book. And uh, Blade Runner 49, 2049, the plot is based on Blade Runner, where a human made love to a replicant. And evidently, the replicant gave birth. So, so that means, oh, so we may have robots that we can breed with in the future. And then the third data point comes from my having written the book this spaceship earth about climate change 150 species a day right now on the planet are becoming extinct a lot of that being insects and plants nevertheless 150 species a day are becoming extinct that is a rate that is 10,000 the average norm of the last few centuries so we are creating our sixth extinction so we don't seem to care right Humans don't seem to care that the tigers have gone away, the giraffes are going away, the condors, you know, we don't care. So my joke is, so what if artificial intelligence takes over our species? Karma's a bitch, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I say that in jest, but in reality, what if that happens? And I always say, the other thing I want to say, um, this is really important to anybody listening. I always get asked the question, about whether this te- this technology, this handheld, you know, iPhone or whatever technology is good or bad. I don't think it's a good technology. The bottom line is technology is always morally neutral. Technology is never good or bad, with the possible exception of creating creating weapons for um, for um, you know warfare. It's how people use it. 
a plane shortens distance, but a plane can drop bombs. So the real danger in machine learning is the manipulation of humans by other humans, not in the intelligence itself. Yeah. It's all, it's like, oh, yes. Yeah. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> right, right. Well, but I think a lot of people don't understand that, right? Um, they think that, you know, um, when I, I'm a baby boomer, so I was of the, I was of the, um, TV generation. And, and at that time, my parents were of the radio and newspaper generation. So it was called the boob tube. So I could only watch an hour a day and only after I had my homework done. Any baby boomer will tell you a similar story. And now what are we having? We're having parents saying, you're there's too much screen time on your phone, right? So, so whenever there's a new technology, people look at it uh, from a, um, a historical point of view, right? So ever since the boob tube came into being in the 50s, uh, the average IQ of America has gone up, right? So uh, that's always the issue. Uh, the other thing I think is whatever technology, what technology did you grow up with? The computer, right? Okay. So I, uh, David's personal theory is that the dominant technology in your life, in anyone's life, will be the technology that most impacted you up to the age of 21. So for boomers, it's TV. For uh, my 31-year-old son, it's the computer and the laptop. For younger people, like I see at Ringling, it's the handheld device. So each generation has its new primary technology. And obviously, now that the millennials and digital natives are in ascendancy, the handheld device has won. It is the dominant screen in the world today. It's interesting too because now you can um, you can subdivide on the physical devices, and now it allows them to actually subdivide their generations through the apps. So they can actually do it faster. Yeah. Like before, you know, you'd have, you'd have the TV or the radio, and then the computer, and then the handheld computer. But now you can actually do it by apps. You can say, okay, well, Instagram is this generation, Snapchat is this generation. So it allows them to actually. They don't have to go, you know, a 13-year-old can actually write the platform for their generation <laughs> like because they can distribute it. We They solve the problem of distribution. You can just put it on the app store. All you have to do, you could basically do it free. You just have to have a device and, a, and an account and you put the app on the app store and then the market gets to speak. So you can, you can generate those those platforms now without having to go actually manufacture all the machines like Apple and Microsoft did. Right. That's exactly right. And, and, you know, I always, you know, I give speeches around the world to different groups for the, you know, manufacturing or service organizations or medical or education. And whenever there's an, whenever I'm speaking to an industry that is, sales oriented and distribution channel oriented, you know, our, our sales distribution channels, I kind of say to them, I hold up my iPhone six plus and I go, this is the only channel, you know, you talk yeah. about these constructed channels. If you're not interfacing with your customer on this, you're not embracing the present, right? I, I fully agree. And then I'm going to assign a task for you. Okay. <laughs> Just because you're a futurist, you got to go bump the upgrade to the X. Okay. You know? Sure. No problem. Right. I, I actually did that yes, uh, two days ago because everyone, it's weird. It's now that I have the show and I'm like talking to people, everyone's like, oh, you don't have the X yet? Oh, you don't have the X yet? And I'm they're like, all my friends and family, I had a birthday party and everyone's like, how do you not have the X? You're Joel. You're the technology guy. 
I get the same thing. So I want to hear how you answer that because I have a clear answer. Oh, well, I say that I'm not, I don't waste my money. Like the software upgrades and I have essentially the same features. So I need to spend the money. So what I, my history is I always buy one generation behind, right? So mm-hmm. when the seven came out, I then bought the six. Why? The functionality isn't that different and the price is much less. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, with the possible exception of you and some of the people who listen to the podcast, most people in the world do not use all the functionality that they carry in their hand. You know, they're doing email and they're doing a limited number of things, you know. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, if you have a piece of technology that is more than good enough for whatever you want to use it, or it is better than what you use it for, why would you buy something new? It doesn't right. make any sense. And the, the, the problem I have with Apple, on the one hand, they're a dynamic company and they're going to be carbon neutral relative to their whole footprint, footprint on earth. On the other hand, they've brought back planned obsolescence. Like in the 50s, you had to buy a car every two years. Why do you have to get a phone? I'm never going to get the 10. And the reason I'm never going to get the 10 because the 10 has already failed. They've come out with cheaper versions. You know this. And so when people say, you need, why don't you have the, the newest technologist? Because I don't need it. Do you? You know, I mean, in other words, the first, I'd say from iPhone 1 through iPhone 7, there was distinct improvement. At this point in time, any improvement on smartphones is, is diminished. You know, each generation had a lot of features worth doing. I don't, at this point in time with the C, the, the one thing I will say is the large screen is one. I have a six plus. Yep. I could not. I always ask somebody who has a smaller screen, why do you have a smaller screen? Well, it's big enough. I go, you know, the six plus, the only reason I wondered if it was too big is it wouldn't fit in my blue jean pocket. And it did. So it wasn't too big. And Oh, nice. You know, right. What do you do on a phone? Now I'm talking to my, an older generation, not necessarily to someone your age, but somebody say, certainly over the age of 40. You know, what do you do on your phone? You read, you watch videos, and you text, all three of which are improved by having a larger surface. Why would you not have a larger surface, right? I, you know, right. that's the only thing that I would argue, anybody who doesn't have a lot. Yeah, I, I went to China in 2015. Not only do they have our asses whooped in terms of high speed. I mean, I was, watch, I was on the Shanghai subway just to take it. And people were watching high def movies live streaming in oh, yeah. that way, right? And the other thing was they all had large phones. They have phones that are bigger than the six, right? You know, right? Some of the Chinese phones are like you know seven inches. They're almost as big as the iPad Mini. Yeah, my sister just moved back to Sarasota from Shenzhen, China. Oh, really? Yeah, she was there teaching English for four or five years. Yeah, and and and. Uh, what did she have to say upon her return? Thank God I'm home or what? No, she, um, she adapted pretty well. Mm-hmm. She kind of explained the differences and, uh, I mean, she was happy to be home because all our family's all in Sarasota. So she was happy from that, but she definitely enjoyed China. It, it's very different over there. Like for example, one day she was telling me there was, there was like a, a neighborhood rioting and the government controls the building. So because they were like protesting in the streets or whatever, whatever the situation was, they just shut off all the power and water to their homes <laughs> until they, they went back and stopped bothering the government. 
Well, you know that that you know that's like in a hotel room, and you say, and and you log on to the Wi-Fi in the hotel, and the first thing that comes up is you may not be able to get Google, Facebook, Twitter. <laughs> you know, oh. but, but here's the thing that's odd about the Chinese. You know, they have one foot in the past and one foot in the future. I was at the Shanghai train station, ready to take a high-speed train down to Beijing you know, with the person who was my handler there because I was giving speeches and a book tour. And so it's it's the biggest, most modern train station I have ever seen. 240 trains go in and out of there a day, and 75% of them go 300 kilometers an hour, right? So then, you know, because of some aid, I say to my traveling companion, uh, let me go to the bathroom one more time, you know? So I go from this, I go into the men's room to go into a stall. And it's one of these stalls circa 200 years ago with two places to put your feet and a hole, right? So you pull your pants down and you squat. And this is, I mean, and this is simultaneously occurrence. And then I walk back out into the, the most modern train station I've ever seen. That's China, right? Right. That's super interesting. Yeah. Because that's their, cause their, their culture. Like, it's okay. Yeah. Right. right. Like, that's, that's how it would work. My sister would tell me that's, that's the thing she likes the most about here is that the, they all have, all the restaurants have bathrooms that are bathrooms. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's odd. So what's, what's your view on voice and Alexa? Do you have one? Yeah. Do you have a, yeah, yeah. I, Again, I'm a high-level trend guy. So ever since, so I've been speaking about what I'm about to tell you for mm, ten years. Mm-hmm. The human-computer interface first began when the computer was in a big air-conditioned room, and there are people who wore lab coats, white lab coats. They're called computer operators, and there are people sitting in cubicles right outside who were programmers, and then there were systems analysts, and that obviously morphed with the personal computer to us keyboarding as the interface with our computers we use a keyboard and then the next thing um, was touch when the iphone came out so touch interface touch screen interface and then alexa and all you know and siri and all the ones like that is voice interface which has yet to be fully mastered with the computer but it's almost there as you know and Mm -hmm. so what i've been talking about for 10 years is brainwave computer interface because that's the next thing it it, it, it's still in research laboratories but basically you know you put on a cap the sensors of which pick up your brain waves and you 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 give an intentional thought to the computer and it performs so then so by 2025 that'll be out into the marketplace easily brainwave computer interface i can buy an sdk right now that lets me do it sdk What's it called? What, is it, what does STK stand for? Uh, software development kit. Okay. So I can buy, a, um, it's a device that goes onto your head. Right. And it comes with an SDK, which is basically I sit there and I've got meters on the screen and I'm thinking jump, 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 jump. And it's showing me the activations of my brain that are jumped. And then I kind of group that data and I make that my jump command. Then I think run, run, run. And I group that data, I make my run command. Then I can go build a little game that where I have a character on the screen. And as I'm thinking jump, the character is jumping. And as I'm thinking run, the character is running. 
could I do this without having any of your coding skills? There's a company that gave a TED Talk that actually has a TED Talk of this happening. They just pick a person out of the audience and they have them do this. They go up on stage, they put the thing on their head and they have the video game set up and they... Is there a way that you could send me a link to get yeah. one of these quote things? Yeah, I think they're like, I think they're like five, seven hundred bucks. You can get a base, basic one and then you it might even come with that game I was describing. Yeah, it, it, well, the reason I want to do it is because since I've been talking about it for 10 years, I'd like to experience it, number one. Yeah. I'd, like to, I'd like to develop the capability in my mind to do it. And number three, of course, how powerful would that be like if I did, if I did that during the presentation that we met at, right? I mean, right. that would be insane. It would yeah. be a presentational thing. Now I'm going to do this. And there, is, there isn't anybody except people who are of your ilk of developed sense of awareness of technology and computers that wouldn't be blown away by that. No, I, when I saw it, I was just absolutely floored and pumped at the same time. Yeah. No, so sometime in fall, please send me anything. Um, I mean, I can go search, but I'm not exactly sure what I'm searching for. So if you could send no, me an email that has links or you might want to look at this, um, I'm, I'm all in. Thank you. Yeah, so what you should do is, um, I'll, I'll give you the company, you should go out and, and take the time to go go meet with them because they would love love to. Right. Pro, we like to have guests come in and like eat all program, like all technology people, like a fun day. It would be cool to have this person come in that's going to then put on our device for our company and go around and talk around around the world. I mean, that's value to both parties involved, right? So you go there and then you would talk with them. They would set you up with the device in the game and you guys would learn how to use it. Then you just integrate it into your talks and they would be super pumped for that, I'm sure. That's great. You know, I mean, what I... So, you know, I, I use props when I speak. And, and, and here's another concept I think you heard me talk about. You know, I, I, I and I've talked about this since 2008, once the iPhone was out. And I said that everybody now, for the first time in history, has two realities, a physical reality based on atoms and a screen reality based on digits. And that because the screen reality based on digits digits can morph more quickly than atoms can, the change that comes in the future starts on the screen. So, you know, then I walk to one side of the stage and I hold up my phone. I go, or, or I don't hold up my phone and I say, uh, why is it over here in the physical retail that malls are closing one a week, the big box stores are shutting down, the strip malls are empty? And I go over to the other side of the stage and I hold up because of something on the screen reality called Amazon.com. And then you go to Uber and then you go to Airbnb. So the reality that's being created on the screen is rearranging the physical reality. And when people get that concept, it blows their mind. Normally, they just think, OK, your physical reality is that you're listening to me. Uh, your screen reality is what's going on in your world outside this room where you're listening to me. And we're the first iteration that that didn't exist until 10 years ago, right? There was only the singular reality. Now there's the dual reality. And the other thing is there's, because there's 7.5 billion people on the planet, 6.2 billion have cell phones. So more people have cell phones than have indoor plumbing or indoor electricity, which means there's cell phone ubiquity, which means there's no time, distance, or place limiting human communication. So the whole concept of communication which was entirely place-based, right? You know, when your parents were growing up, they had a phone in the office and a phone at home. So you had to be in a place to take a phone call. Now you don't. So the concept of place has been totally separated 
from the concept of communication, which is a fundamental change in consciousness. Oh man, this is so good. <laughs> we can do this again. I'm having too much fun as well. So here's a few points that cropped up that you might be able to to integrate in your stuff or might find interesting. So having actually written some machine learning code, I have some experience with this, right? So one of the things that we are actually lacking on right now, everyone says, you know, all oh, the AI concept or what they imagine, the general public imagines AI is like a human that can just be a human, which is so interesting to me. But anyways, they say well, it's so far, so far out until that happens. It's going to be forever until that happens. And then they don't realize that what the machine learning algorithms can do today are severely limited by processing power. So we actually, we're, we're sitting around waiting for processing power. For me to train a machine learning model on something ultra basic right now could take a couple days, right? I have to run it, and it could take a couple days on a, on a normal computer. If I hook, I pay for a, a cloud systems where I can have multiple processing and multiple computers at the same time, it still takes a long time for me to train on a relatively simple task. Those same principles, we could train it on larger tasks, but the life cycle of the training is so drawn out right now because of the limitations of the processor. So what's going to happen is we're actually ahead of the hardware right now and what we can do. And when we start getting to that point where the hardware is, is catching up and we're going to be able to do insane things with machine learning. Well, I have a question there. Um, you know, I give talks with a guy who used to be at IBM um, we're mm -hmm. called the AI guys. And, you know, I'd love for anybody who here is listening to book us. I mean, we basically take the high level, high conceptual levels of AI and translate it into the business community. What you need to know about this. And here's the context, right? But so we reference Watson a lot. Watson is different. Is the Watson and supercomputers like that is an exception to what you just said or not? Oh, it's not an exception to what I'm, they're, they're still they're like, well, okay. So, oh, yeah. so let me ask you a question. I'm connecting two things. What you just said, we're ahead of the hardware. That's a brilliant statement. So sometime within five years, maybe 10 years for absolutely sure, quantum computing will really take hold. And the way I've researched it, I'm told that quantum computing can increase computer speed by 100,000 times. Is that, and so one, is that correct? Two, will that be the transformative moment relative to machine learning? Um, I don't, I don't know if about the specifics of the hardware and if the quantum computers will be the big, the big change. But here's what I do know. I do know that I have been a geek about this type of stuff my whole life about how people learn and, and also technology. And now that I have a five month old daughter, so, so now I'm watching her. And I'm thinking about life and I'm thinking about all the technology. And what I'm seeing is something very, very, very clear. All you can do in life is really try things, take the best things that work, learn from them, have that experience, move forward, try something else, and then pay attention to what's happening in your environment. So it's all these, like we do, we're very basic humans and like ev everything is very basic and simple on one perspective. So when you think about a, a machine learning system, you think, well, all, if you had the processing, the same processing power as a, a brain, right? And you could accept all the input and accept a, as an 
as the brain as a whole, both conscious and unconscious, if you had that processing power, all you would really have to do is make a machine learning algorithm that's try things, takes what it's like, learns from it, processes it, creates an experience, understands the experience. moves. I mean, it's not that difficult. What's difficult is the scale of data and input that you need and the processing power okay. that you need. So, so the, the apps, the, the, the apps of programming is not, it's the programming and funneling the, enough data in is what you're saying, it's, right? It's all, it's all coming down to processing power. So, okay, okay. And, and what do you think is, when will there be a processing breakthrough and what will it be? Well, I think we're inside of an exponential processing breakthrough because every time we're, we have very fast computers compared to 20 years ago, clearly. And then every, it's our fast computers that then learn with us and that can create the faster computers. Like you can't, you could create a microchip in 1980s with, you know, basic tools, right? Or the seventies with basic tools. But now they're like these high performance lasers that only these like highly programmed, very exact machines can create, right? So as our technology gets better, we can create better performing technology. It's like, we're basically rapidly iterating through technology generations inside of technology way faster than humans iterate. I mean, we take, you know, a whole human generation to iterate and we can iterate technology very, very fast. As we, now that we've started to build these machine learning tools that are very intelligent or it's, it's very, uh, we have the processing power at the rate we do right now, then we're going to be able to create better electronics. And I think it's just going to happen exponentially and small iterative cycles. And there'll be a little breakthrough here. There'll be a little breakthrough there. There'll be a little, and it'll, it'll just stack up just like everything else in life, you know? So, so uh, you know, what I've said is that uh, even though the underpinnings of artificial intelligence, staying with that term, um, have been around for decades, it's only really in the last three years that the, that the possibilities have started to manifest themselves. And what you just said means that within another three to five years, it will become absolutely unstoppable. Uh, on almost any metric. Um, so I want to come back briefly, real quickly, the, the quote of machine learning that I always use that re- relates to your daughter, the definition of machine learning, quote, the ability of a machine to improve its performance based on previous results. And then I turn to the audience and I say, how does a one-year-old learn how to walk? Same thing, right? So so here's the big here's the big concept. Artificial intelligence is the single greatest technological invention since electricity in terms of how it will transform how humanity lives. Obviously, when electricity came in, it ended up lighting up the night, it it air-conditioned the desert, it made something other than the stove able to cook things in the kitchen, whether it be toast, coffee, or microwave popcorn right mm-hmm. but the so accept that as a parallel i think it's very valid because there's no i mean all of a sudden there were cities all of a sudden there was night all of a sudden there was air conditioning but all those things were invented after electricity was discovered or invented right right so when electricity was invented the smartest people following it probably said, oh, that means I'll be able to work or do things at night because it will light up the night. They didn't see air conditioning. They didn't see global electronic communications because it only developed afterwards. So the issue I try to get through to people today is 
Right now, we see artificial intelligence as solving problems more quickly and putting people out of work. But we have no idea what might happen to humanity and technology and the world after artificial intelligence fully, you know, um, becomes as dominant and influential as it will be in the 2020s. So I ask people to think about that. When electricity was invented, nobody even had the concept of air conditioning. When electricity was invented, nobody had the concept of a television set. When electricity was invented, nobody had a concept of electric transportation. So we don't know what artificial intelligence is going to provide us after we've, has, we've assimilated it or we've assimilated with it going forward. So there is no real way to talk about artificial intelligence and its consequences um, except to imagine. In other words, there's no, oh, artificial intelligence can get rid of jobs, right? You know, yeah. it's like saying, oh, electricity is going to get rid of candles. Right. Um, I, I, I've loved this. I'm sorry I yeah, went over. No, wait, no worries at all. It was a fantastic okay. conversation. I super appreciate your time and talk with us about the future. Is You're awesome, David. Well, you're awesome too as well. And particularly when I know that you're really only seven years old, it's amazing. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.